Good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. What a special day. I want to extend my thanks to Brother Brady for leading us in worship today. Yet one more brick in the wall of God's faithfulness to his church. If you've not had the opportunity to meet Brady and his wonderful wife, Nicole, be prepared to meet two people who love Jesus, who love his word and who love the church. We're happy and we're blessed to have them in our family. We do love you guys. Well, happy Father's Day. We celebrate dads today, don't we? We love our dads. We know what a job it is. But in truth, our celebration is unto God who fashioned the high calling in the role of fatherhood. A father's protection and his leadership and covering is a reflection of and a direct representation of Christ to his church. These roles matter as God has designed the family unit to function beautifully within that divine structure. And because of its importance, because it is God-breathed, we see secular and satanic forces have committed significant resources to breaking down and denigrating the role of the father in society and in the home. Watch any TV show now, any sitcom, and you'll not find a dad who's portrayed with sound mind and strong leadership. You'll find that most dads are made out to be bumbling fools and chuckleheads. Try to find a recent Hollywood film that portrays a father fulfilling his biblical role and you may be looking for a while. See, the world desires to flip these roles on their head, driven by the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. First John warns. As we look at scripture, we see that God is indeed complementarian. From the creation account of Genesis, he reveals that he is complementarian. Now, I hope this is a term that's familiar to all, but it may not be. Put very simply, complementarianism is a biblical position that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement or to complete one another. Complementarians believe that the gender roles that are found in the Bible are purposeful, They have meaningful distinctions that when they're applied to the home and to the church, they promote the spiritual wealth and health of both men and women. Embracing the divinely ordained roles of men and women further allows the ministry of God's people and the men and women in the church to reach their full God-given potential. And of course, different or, or complementary roles do not mean a difference in value or of importance, both genders. And yes, there are only two genders. And no, there is no difference between gender and sex. Both are images, image bearers of God. One does not carry any more value than the other. We even see complementarianism represented most beautifully in the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all serve different roles. The Son submitted himself to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits himself to the Father and to the Son, yet all are fully and equally God with different roles. God is thoroughly complementarian and has designed us to be as well. So fathers, on this Father's Day, be encouraged. Fulfill your role with resolve, with sacrificial joy, and with gentleness. And great will be the peace of your home 
and of your church. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we completed our two-part series, Demonic Meets Divine. And this week we will begin another two-part installment of both disease and death meet the divine. Mark's agenda is pretty clear, isn't it? And it wasn't a secret. Mark's agenda was not a secret. He told us at the beginning of the gospel that he aims to irrefutably demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, supreme authority over all nature, as we saw in the Sea of Galilee, over the demoniac, as we saw with Legion in the demoniac of the Gadarene. And now we will see Jesus' authority and power over both disease and death. Nature, demons, disease, death. Jesus Christ is the supreme authority. Jesus Christ is God. If you had to give a summary sentence for what will be the last five messages after next week, it would be simply that. The simplest yet most consequential statement you could make, that anyone could make. Think about that for a moment. If I asked you right now to come up with a more consequential statement than Jesus is God, what would it be? What statement would have a larger impact on your life, on your eternity, on the entire destiny of nations, on the creation of the cosmos, on final judgment, on the ultimate source of your joy, on your contentment in life? I could go on and on. What statement could you make that has more bearing than Jesus is God? Our lives, the very cosmos, revolve around this truth. It means everything. We rise or fall. On this truth, Paul told the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, proving that he's God, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Meaning if Jesus is not God, if he is not who he said he was, proving it by defeating death and hell and by being raised from the grave, we are the most pathetic lot of people ever. But the fact is, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. The wind and the waves obey him. The demons tremble before him. And now disease and death will also bow the knee to King Jesus. So without further ado, let's open this amazing text. Mark 5, 21 through 29. Mark 5, 21 through 29. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come that by coming you may lay your hands on her so that she will be saved and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years 
and it endured much at the hands of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his garment. For she was saying, if I just touch his garments, I will be saved from this. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she knew within her body that she had been healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself, oh, we'll stop there. Give you a little preview of next week. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this text as inadequate. We are humbled by what you have done to serve such a king, to be condescended to, to be looked upon with favor by one who has disease and death under his feet. Indeed, you have done all things well. And we know that your word is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow. Lord, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Holy Spirit, we ask that this be accomplished through the preaching of the word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, over the next two weeks, we're going to be entering into the world of two people, two very different people, both coming to Jesus in desperation and both coming in radical faith and both risking much to make such a plea for the keen of eye here this morning. You will have noticed one of the unique literary characteristics of this gospel, that of the Markin sandwich. Yes, we have another one here. This is one of the clearest examples of it in the gospel. We have here a story of a resurrection. We have the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead. That's the bread. And stuck right in the middle is the healing of this woman with the issue of blood. Now, this is intentional. They very much work together in this case. One is even shedding clarity and light upon the other, as we'll see as we work our way through. What we are witnessing here today, saints, is a preview. It is a preview of the kingdom that is being inaugurated with the coming of Christ. We're witnessing a preview of the resurrection with Jairus' daughter. And we're witnessing a preview of Jesus wiping away every tear and restoring our bodies in eternity with this woman. These are foretastes of what is to come. When we read these accounts today, these are just a taste of the hope we have in Christ. These are a down payment on what is indeed to come and is still to come. We want to put our arms around it if we were possible. Not only the power of Jesus. We want to wrap our arms around the power of Jesus, but the great compassion, the great mercy and the great pity that Jesus is covered in. That's our Savior. We need to see both of those attributes shining in our text today. And we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump in, beginning with verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat... To the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. 
Well, if you've been following our narrative for the past month or so, you're almost starting to get a sense for this location, aren't you? And for Jesus's movements. This movement with the boats began with Jesus about two days ago. Only when he crossed the sea originally and calmed the sea, only to arrive on the other side with the Gadarene, this area of, the Gar- of, of Gargesa with the demonic, and now only to return yet again. So today we're heading back again westward, back from the eastern shore where Jesus had been run out on a rail. But as we saw in Mark chapter 7, these same people would later say he has done all things well. They begged him there to leave though, didn't they? The area, in a tragic response, what does Jesus do? He gives them what they desire. He got in the boat and back they head to Capernaum. Waiting for them, we see a very common scene in that a large crowd had gathered around him. Now, what we easily miss is that it says, and so he stayed by the seashore. Now, what do we draw from that? Well, we can deduce that these people never left. The actual seashore, as it were, in this area of Capernaum, it's not very big. It's a normal seashore. So we're talking about thousands of people. And this matters because it tells us a great deal about the tempo of ministry, the hunger of the people, whether proper motives or not. We know mostly not proper motives, but Jesus was certainly the hot ticket. They probably sat here for two days when Jesus had originally left. They knew Jesus lived with Peter in Capernaum. They knew that he would be back. And so they wait. Some likely with desperate needs and some are just there for the show. But one man there is special. One man there is notable. One man there is full of faith and desperation. So let's meet him in verse 22. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. Well, the title of synagogue official is not one that we're familiar with yet. So who is this guy? Is this a Pharisee? Is this a Sadducee? Is this a scribe? Nope, he's none of those things. We might in loose terms refer to him today as a very powerful deacon. He was an administrator. He was a caretaker. He watched over the scrolls and the facilities. They would arrange schedules. They'd handle much of the background of what happened in the synagogue. His position was invaluable to the operation of the synagogue. But this was not some sort of humble, unseen position. This was a highly respected appointment. And you did not get to this position without being highly loved and highly respected in the community. And most importantly, by being a fixture of the religious establishment. And that matters. That's key to why Lanesville 2021 cares about this. You did not become a synagogue official without being one of the boys. Well, who were the boys? Who ran the religious establishment? Who determined the sway of the synagogue? Now we're talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. We need to make this connection. If Jairus is a synagogue official, while he's not a scholar himself, he is joined at the hip with the religious establishment. He is in lockstep with the scribes and the Pharisees. If you're Jairus, you are part of the religious establishment. Your entire life revolves around this position where you sat in the restaurant, your honor in the marketplace, your livelihood, everything was wrapped up and defined by this association. And he who pays the piper calls the tune. 
You would not dare contradict a Pharisee's teaching. You would not dream of cavorting or associating with someone that was considered anathema by the boys club. Question. What was the disposition of the scribes and Pharisees toward this rogue rabbi named Jesus? Would we say it's positive? It actually stood somewhere between loathing and hatred. We saw earlier in Mark that they were even plotting his murder already. So we need that background to appreciate the scene we're about to witness. Now, if we rotate the diamond, Luke picks up this radical move by Jairus to come to Jesus. No need to turn there. I'll read it. Luke 841. Some translations read, behold, there came a man named Jairus. What does behold mean? It means, whoa, it means check this out. It means no way. We don't get a behold exclamation point when any other man comes up to Jesus. So why Jairus? Why Jairus? Because this was a big deal. This man was putting everything on the line just to be seen with Jesus. This was like the Pope asking Martin Luther for help. He stood to lose it all. So when we see Jairus approach Jesus, let's understand the stakes. He was well aware of the Pharisees opinion of this man. He knew their hatred. He also knew the miracles. Jesus was the name in Capernaum and Jairus was a synagogue official. How familiar do you think he was with Jesus? Jairus knew very well. And ironically, what would have what would have been the first testimony Jairus would have heard about Jesus? Well, there's one main synagogue in Capernaum. What happened in a few chapters back at the synagogue in Capernaum? A demon came out, didn't it? And he called Jesus the Holy One of God. Did Jairus hear this? I would have to say it's very, very likely. We see God using the testimony and the disruption of the demon for his own purposes and glory. Jairus was, was likely right there watching and listening to it all. The testimony of a demon being a brick in the wall of Jairus's faith. I love how God works. But still, we need to understand the stakes, the livelihood, the loss of prestige, of status that awaited Jairus. And yet we're about to see that none of that matters. None of it. Last part of verse 22. And on seeing him fell at his feet. Well, first observation is that Jairus was already there. He was already there. Now, I was at an SBC convention recently with about the same number of people that were on this shoreline. Now, get up to the front row. Good luck. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're already there. You've been there. You don't show up when you hear that Jesus is at the shoreline and make it to him. No way. Not possible. He may have been there for two days already since Jesus left, sleeping in the sand. We don't know. What we do know is what he does when he sees the face of the one he sought. He fell at his feet. Matthew's gospel says he worshipped. He worshipped. If the tragedy or the hardship has caused you to fall at Jesus' feet, then we must praise him for the tragedy and we must praise him for the hardship. 
Whether the Lord heals his daughter or not, it's driven him to the feet of the Savior. And so it is well. Do not despise any circumstance in life that drives you to the feet of Jesus. The very circumstance is in his hands. Yet we are to be anxious for nothing. But with prayer and supplication, make our requests known unto God. And so Jairus speaks. Jairus gives us a look behind the curtain of his faith. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he speaks. Verse 23. Mark 5, 23. And pleaded with him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come. Please come. That by coming, you may lay your hands on her so that she will be saved and live. Any parent can hear the pain and the pleading in his voice. His daughter, 12 years old, was just entering into womanhood. Her whole life was ahead of her. It's fading away before his eyes. If Jesus does not come, there is no question his daughter will die. This is a desperation that few people will ever experience. A father stood on the precipice of burying his child. Yet out of the pain and out of the desperation, in the midst of the throng and the press of people around him, what makes Jesus stop in his tracks? Everyone's yelling for him right now. Everyone's screaming for him. Faith. Raw, unyielding, stubborn, complete, no doubt faith. This faith is not normal. This faith is not a hope. In fact, Jesus goes right past Jairus goes right past Jesus' ability to heal her. He says, saved and live. He does not even doubt that he can raise her from the dead. We can't miss this. This proclamation that you can not only heal her, but you can raise her from the dead is an uncommon faith. This is a settled faith. This is a man who knows who Jesus is. Now, is his faith perfect? Does he have even the right understanding? No. Does Jesus need to lay his hand on his daughter to heal her? No. Does Jesus need to go with him? No. Think of the faith of the centurion. But Jesus meets him where he is. None of, our, none of us have a perfect faith. None of us have our theology perfect. We're all a work in progress. We will have truths shown to us when we stand before him on that day that will make us want to bury our heads. In our hands. But Jesus meets Jairus where he is. His understanding of what Jesus could do was not perfect. He was influenced somewhat by superstition. Asking Jesus to come and lay hands. He was a product of the theological teaching he had received. We all suffer from this in various ways. Yet in our text. Hear the love in this father's voice. My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come what we'll see next is something i love so much about my savior it is precious it is amazing it is convicting what does jesus do verse 24 and he went off with him stop there some theologians half jo some theologians half jokingly call this jesus's interruptibility what an attribute his interruptibility saints you must see this crowd Jesus was in what was called the press. 
This is a rock concert mosh pit type of press. Now, no one in here would know what that is, I'm sure. But this faith is like a beacon. There are 10,000 things pulling at Jesus right now, vying for his attention, screaming for his ear. And he went off with him. Jesus was there to do the will of him who sent him. Thousands were following. Thousands were pressing and crying out, but only two would capture his attention. It's almost painful to pull away from this scene with Jairus at this point. We're enraptured in the compassion of Jesus that he's showing this desperate father. One who risked it all and waited on the shoreline for one that he knew was Messiah. So it's hard to leave that scene, but Mark, in his sandwich, draws our gaze off of Jairus. Don't worry, he'll be back next week. And draws our gaze onto a woman. This woman, this unclean, untouchable woman, her story is worth far more than a sermon. She's a book. And we could glean and glean from this telling. It is painful. It is rich. It is stirring and it is convicting. If we dare, verse 25. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. One theologian writes, quote, In some ways, this woman was the antithesis of Jairus. He was a highly respected leader of the synagogue. She was a social outcast who, due to her condition, had been ostracized from Jewish religious life. While Jairus had known 12 years of joy and happiness with his daughter, this woman had experienced 12 years of heartache and rejection due to her ailment. Yet she and Jairus shared this in common. They both knew Jesus was their only hope. End quote. We need to understand this woman and her condition as well as we can within the confines of our time. We see that she had a hemorrhage for 12 years. This is a menstrual bleeding. 12 years. 12 years of having the life literally drained from you. Well, we're given some background here in verse 26. 5 verse 26. And he and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all but rather had grown worse. We need to understand what this meant for this woman. First, from a medical standpoint, there was no cure for this. In fact, no diseases were ever cured. Really, before the 19th century, we didn't know anything about them. What was offered by these physicians were combinations of superstition and and different methods of relief, but no cure. In this case, in this woman's case, in this time and location, the, the physicians would have prescribed some very strange things. One, they would burn an ostrich egg. They would burn it all the way down to ash. And they would put that ash in a linen type cloth. And they would wear that during the hotter months. And she would be instructed to do the same in the winter months with an ostrich ashes in a cotton bag. One method also had them pick out pieces of corn processed through animal dung. We need to hear this and use that in the cotton bag. I say this not to spoil your lunch, but that you might feel and identify this woman's shame and her pain. This real 
We need to see the language used in this verse as it gives us a great key. Mark describes her condition as a mastix. A mastix, that's a graphic expression meaning a whip, a lash, scourge, or a torment. It's considered punishment. What makes up the bones of this verse are a dramatic collision of Greek participles. Sorry to take you back to English class, but listen to this cadence. Listen to this volley of participles back and forth. Having a blood flow. Having suffered from many doctors. Having exhausted all her wealth. Having not improved, but having gotten worse. The same verse is equally emphatic and categorical. She suffered much from many and exhausted all and gained nothing. Do we see this? Mark is writing like this intentionally. This pattern is meant to build and build on itself to give the reader greater compassion for this woman. Any Jew reading this may have set down this letter or scroll. To even talk about this issue was unseemly. But Mark says, wait, stop. See this woman. See her. Jairus' daughter had spent 12 years living. This woman had spent the same 12 years dying. The description of her life reads like a curse and a prison. By the very law of her people, she was divorced from her husband. She was likely childless, could not even live in her own home. She was ostracized from all society. She must not even come into contact with her old friends. She was excommunicated from the services of the synagogue, and thus she was shut out from the women's court in the temple. She was perpetually, ceremonially unclean. This condition, again, likely meant that she was childless. What was being barren? What was being barren considered in this society? It's cursed. It was a sin. They thought that brought about your barrenness, right? And you, you're not only barren, but you hemorrhage. What grave sin have you committed? Hers was a life of loneliness and shame, guilt for a lost life and a tormented conscience for what she had done to deserve this curse by God. And money. She gave everything. Trying to get her life back. This is a tragic, tragic life. It's tragic. Now, as I read the many implications of her condition and all the various Jewish laws, it very much brought me back to the leper. She might as well have been a leper. And yet she only grew worse. More demoralized every day as she felt life itself leaving her. Her desperation leads her to break every cultural norm to step over all taboos and to push her way through a crowd, making everyone she would even brush up against unclean for temple. She didn't care. This was her chance and she was going to take it. Desperation pushed her through this crowd. And what does she do? Verse 27 and 28, I'll read them as one. After hearing about Jesus... She came up in the crowd behind him and touched his garment. For she was saying, if I just touch his garments, I will be saved from this. 
Well, some know that when we lived overseas as a family, we did some work with orphanages in Thailand. And we loved everything about the country and area, but one of the more curious traits of the Thai people was their continuous desire to touch you. People always wanted to hold your children. And you would see them, they'd want to touch their hair and their skin, and they'd often rub their cheek on your children. They believed in karma. And, they be and because my children were born as they were, they had good karma. And if they could touch my children, it was hoped that some of that karma would rub off on them. This is not a new phenomenon. All throughout history, people have attached touch to somehow absorbing part of that person. Arian even writes, quote, Alexander the Great was often mobbed by crowds who ran to him from all sides, some touching his hands, some his knees, some his garment, in hopes of being baptized with his aura and power, end quote. So now it says that she touched his garment. Now this probably refers to the tassels that are on the bottom in the corners of Jesus's garment. All observant Jews would wear these. And if you were a Pharisee, you wore super big ones. So everyone could see how holy and observant you were. But this is likely what this woman grabbed a hold of, that tassel. And this tells us a few things about who she understands Jesus to be. Along with that, and make a note for your own notes, Exodus 29, 37 speaks of that. But along with a healthy dose of superstition, this likely was informing this woman that she should touch Jesus. She saw Jesus as the Holy One of Israel. If I am to touch the altar, as it says in Exodus 29, 37, then I must touch him. Yes, this action was mixed. It was wrong in her thinking. It was not a perfect approach. The quality of her faith was not as it should have been. But the object of her faith was correct. And Jesus will meet that. That's not an excuse to have a weak or bad theology after 20 years as a believer. You can come to Jesus as you are, but you cannot stay that way. This woman would no doubt learn all about her Savior and set aside any superstition. For she was saying, if I just touch his garments, I will be saved from this. Some translations say that she's thinking. And this is the imperfect tense meaning that she was mulling it over constantly in her mind. This was a continuous thought for her. She was consumed with getting to Jesus, is what that means. And so she does. Now, what happens when faith reaches out and touches the divine? Verse 29. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she knew within her body that she had been healed her affliction. Mark's favorite word immediately. Disease bows the knee. The creator has restored immediately. Twelve years of intense shame and exhaustion. Twelve years of being ostracized and frustrated. Twelve years of no church. Twelve years without a hug. Twelve years of barely feeling human all extinguished in a moment with Jesus. It's gone. It's gone. She knew within her body that she had been healed of her affliction. Her faith was not perfect, but it was real. Now, people can have all manner of real faith in all manner of things. 
misplaced or otherwise. But what made this faith the real, real? What made it valid? What was it about this faith that healed her of her affliction? It was the object of that faith. The intensity of our faith does not determine its validity. We can be intensely wrong. The sincerity of our faith does not determine its truth, for we can be sincerely wrong. It is the object of that faith that makes it the real, real. The object of this woman's faith, however incomplete at this moment, however flawed, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the compassionate and the powerful one. Many people were there in our scene today to see this Jesus. Jesus stood in the middle of a press where he could hardly move. People everywhere there to see Jesus. Yet none turned his head. Only these two, Jairus and our woman. And speaking of this woman, Church Father Augustine, long ago, he said of this story, quote, flesh presses, faith touches. He could always distinguish between the jostle of a curious mob and the agonized touch of a needy soul. Some may recognize this song as we close from Bill Gaither, as he was writing not only of the healing of our leper in Mark 1, but of our woman today. He wrote this in 1963, some of you may know it, called He Touched Me. Shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched, oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he has touched me and made me whole. Since I've met this blessed Savior, since he's cleansed and made me whole, I will never cease to praise him. I'll shout it while eternity rolls. Oh, he touched me. Oh, he touched me. He touched me and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened and now I know he touched me and made me whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by these two examples of faith in our text today. Lord, each of these were in their own place of desperation. And Lord, the place of a desperate saint is a beautiful place. One that drives us to our feet of our Savior. Lord, help us to not despise the pain. Help us to not despise the challenges and the sanctifying elements that are in our life that cause us to press through the crowd and to press to you. Lord, you have touched each person in here today. Lord, we ask that if salvation has not come to anyone in the sound of this voice, Lord, that today would be the acceptable day of salvation. We thank you that you have touched us. Lord, we ask that you would be faithful to complete the good work you began in each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.